It's exciting stuff that we're, we're doing here, and um, you know, in the, in the near future, we have lots to tell you about. But in January, we're we're gonna start rolling out some worship uh, nights, uh, probably a week full of worship every night, just declaring the goodness of the Lord over Philadelphia and Bristol, uh, and then also um, we're gonna be doing once a month, trying to bring an in gathering of multiple churches here, multiple network, just to really come together uh, and declare the word of the Lord over the city. Amen. Thanks, bro. And I'm hoping that will uh, get you excited. <clears throat> so today uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our uh, typical um, sermon series uh, because it is Thanksgiving coming up. And so I wanted to go down the realm of, uh, of, of thankfulness, um, which obviously directs all things back to Jesus and to uh, the Word of God. Uh, but yeah, it's a little bit of a break. And to, to start this out, we're actually going to start in an interesting place. We're going to start in the book of Lamentations, which is not really a place you want to necessarily begin uh, a sermon on thankfulness. Lamentations uh, it comes from to lament, to cry out, to be sad, to, to be in mourning. The whole book is titled, entitled that. But in the middle of the book of Lamentations, uh, there is a declaration. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. And you can't make this up because I don't, I don't talk to Tony. I don't talk to Mary about what I'm preaching out. But Tony was actually singing this over the congregation uh, during worship. I don't know if you remember that or not. That's the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says this. <clears throat> Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. So this is uh, the prophet Jeremiah who is declaring this. Uh, it is the year, approximately the year 586 B.C., 586 years before the coming of Jesus. Uh, and it is a very powerful and destructive and horrible, horrible time. It's a time uh, that the city of Jerusalem is being destroyed the temple is being destroyed, and the southern kingdom of Israel, or rather the northern kingdom of Israel, is being sent out to Babylon. Your capital city is destroyed, down to the stones. The nation comes in, Babylon, they take all of your people captive. Taking some of your men and putting them into slavery. Taking some of your women and your daughters and making them prostitutes. Going over to land and salting the land. So you can't even grow any crops there if you ever dare return. And it's in that moment that Jeremiah declares, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's like, gosh, like how on earth could a man stand in that promise of the goodness of the Lord when all of this is happening around him? It's amazing. I mean, any of you like go through a difficult, hard time and there seems to be no way out, do you actually stand in that place and now declare the goodness of the Lord? Good. It's hard to do that, but Jeremiah is doing that. And it's very bizarre that he's doing this and you have to ask, him, why is he doing this and how can he do this? It's because I believe Jeremiah understands uh, what I'm calling the economy of thankfulness. Thanks, bro. It was great. No, I love, I love the encouragement from, 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 from people. Pastor Ramon is, is, you know, at another church, and, you know, that it's like, 
black culture and uh, Hispanic culture have that like kind of like amen kind of stuff. And so I, I like that. I like that. So keep it coming. So uh, we're going to do a, little, a little brief little understanding of economics. And John is like, oh. Actually, you're excited because you want to be an economist, right? Amen. So uh, economics is, um, is, is, you know, is a study here because economics of thankfulness. So what is this thing, economics of thankfulness? All right, well, what is economics? Economics is essentially how a society gets its needs and wants met uh, through the use of scarce resources. And it's not just about money. It's about how do you get what you need and what you want. And I need to throw this out there because we all need something and we all want something. But what's so amazing is that this week is Thanksgiving. It's a time to just be, be reflective of the thankfulness of our heart, of all of our, essentially our needs, food, water, shelter being met. And then also for many of us, or practically all of us, the majority of our wants being met. And so personally, there's so much to be thankful for, even if your life is in shambles. Dare I say that? Jeremiah's entire nation is in shambles and he's able to muster inside of him a belief that the Lord's mercies are new every day and there's something to be thankful for. So personally, man, we, we have so much to be thankful for. I just encourage you this week, right, just to be thankful and to, to, to take moments and understand your needs are met. Most of all of our needs mostly are met and even most of our wants are met. It's amazing. And then there's another portion here of, of thankfulness. Uh, the United States, the nation that we live in, man, like it is unreal. The wants that have been met inside of our minds and our souls. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the gross domestic product of the United States, the overall wealth of the nation, right? If you take all the wealth and you liquidate it and you put it into cash, how much is this nation worth? Does anyone know outside of Jonathan? I got four billion. How much? A little less than that. Twenty-one trillion dollars, approaching twenty-two trillion dollars. Twenty-one to twenty-two trillion dollars worth of wealth in this nation. You know what the second most powerful nation in money is? China. They're at twelve trillion. We're almost twice as wealthy as that nation. Now, our nation has 320 million people in it. Their nation has over 1 billion people in it. So they have a lot less money to go around, if you, right, you understand the basic mathematics there. We have $21 trillion to go around to 320 million people. They have $12 trillion to go around 1.2 billion people. It's insane, man. It's totally insane. Third on the list, Japan. Five trillion. Great Britain. Oh, Great Britain, a powerful empire, right? We were their colony at one point. A whopping $3.6 trillion. I'm sorry, 2.6. Germany was 3.6. Russia? Oh, Russia, you know, maybe there's going to be a war with Russia one day, Vladimir Putin, this, that, and the other thing. With all due respect from people that come from Russia, it's a joke. They have $1.6 trillion. Total wealth. We have 20 times the aggregate wealth of our closest enemy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's right. It is ridiculous 
how wealthy this nation is in comparison. Here's a crazy little uh, map. I love this map. It shows if America was broken down into individual countries. The nation of California, hypothetically, would have the same size economy as the entire United Kingdom. Texas would have the same size economy as Saudi Arabia. Pennsylvania, the same size as Colombia. New York, the same size as Turkey. Colorado, the same size as Czech Republic. Guys, it is absolutely ridiculous how much bounty is in this nation. And it is definitely something to be thankful for. We are living in the wealthiest society history has ever known. Think about that. We live in the wealthiest society the nation has ever known. It's something to be thankful for. It is something to be thankful for. And we're going to do that on Thursday. But what's amazing here is Friday comes, doesn't it? Friday is going to come. From Thursday, we're full of thanks. And within less than 24 hours, the entire spirit of the nation changes. That's true. I mean, it literally, at 11.59 on Thursday, we are thankful for our families and everything the Lord has provided for us. And at 12.01, the spirit of the nation changes to want. To want, to want, to want. It's amazingly disheartening that that happens that quick. It is, yeah. It's happening even earlier. You're absolutely right. Now, wants, 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 wants. Wants are not attainable. Wants are not attainable. They are fleeting. This is the problem. This is the problem to humans. If you want something, you'll get it. Amen. Or maybe you can't get it, but you know what I'm saying. Like We get the things that we want a lot of the times. Not all the times, but a lot of times. And once we get that thing, here's the problem. You're always, always you're going to want more. Come on, let's just be honest. Like You get a nice pair of pants or jeans that you've always wanted, and you get the nice pair of jeans, and you're wearing them for a couple of days, and you're like, oh, it'd be really nice to get... Another pair of jeans. Or you're living in an apartment like, oh man, I just really would love to own a house, right? And then you own a house and you're like, oh, but you know, it, it's not fixed up and so now I want to fix it up. Or then it's like, oh, well, I, need a big, I want a bigger one, right? It's, it's fleeting, man. This is the problem. It, it, you, you try to get it, but you can never, ever obtain it. It's impossible because you're a human, when the Spirit comes, right, your wants are going to change. This is, this is the clause that you understand. The psalmist says, I shall want not. I shall want not. It's not a place like, oh, the Lord has given me everything and now there's nothing else to want. It is coming to a place of, I shall want not, meaning that I am totally okay and content and, and full of thanksgiving of where I am now. That's the goal of a believer. Luke chapter 12, 15. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. And he, Jesus, said to them, 
Take heed and beware of covetousness, of want. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Now why is, why is Jesus saying this? Life is not in what you have. Because if you live in abundance and you get more things, you are always going to want more. You're just going to want more. And so life is actually uh, slipping through your fingers. Amen. Like you get it and you're happy for a day or two days or maybe if you're lucky a week and then whoop, a little bit more. Uh, the, the, one of my favorite philosophers, American philosopher Henry David Thoreau says it this way, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. And that's really what Jesus is saying. When you go to try to want more, you don't, it's not the place of life. Because every time you try to get more, you're giving something up. You are absolutely giving something up no matter what you want. You want a bigger house? You want a spouse? You want a boyfriend, girlfriend? You want uh, to kill the pain through an addiction? You, you want it. And to get those things, life is going to be slipping through your fingers. The enjoyment, the contentment, the full of thanksgiving in the moment, it will slip through your fingers and this is what Jesus is talking about and this is what Henry David Thoreau, America's first hippie, is saying. Now, wanting is not bad. Let me be very careful, right? I mean, want is, is not necessarily a bad thing. You can think about like where our society and where our lives would be if you didn't want anything. Well, then what would be the purpose of waking up, right? What would be the purpose of like going to school? What would be the purpose of, of getting a job? It would, be, it would be a really kind of weird life. In fact, we could argue that life maybe could not exist if there wasn't some element of want inside of you. So it's got to be there. But that's, it's different than what I'm talking about and what Jesus is talking about, what Henry David Thoreau is talking about. What, they're all, what we're all trying to say is this. When your wants are untamed... When your wants are un untamed, your spiritual life is going to become depleted. Say that again. When your wants are untamed, when it controls you, your spiritual life is going to be depleted. And why is this? Because there's three things that are happening when your wants are untamed. The first thing is your want can lead to greater sins. Your untamed desires will lead to greater sins. Two, your untamed want or desire creates a spirit of unthankfulness inside of you. Three, it will produce a poverty mindset inside of you. So these are the three things that I believe happens when your wants and your desires are untamed. It's going to lead to greater sin. It's going to create a spirit of unthankfulness inside of you, which is going to be really bad, which we'll talk about. And three, it's going to create a poverty mindset, mindset inside of you. Now, fortunately, we don't have to rediscover all these ancient truths because the Bible themselves tells. And it's so simple sometimes. Uh, there is an ancient warning by God himself that tells us about the first one. Your want can and will lead to greater sin. Uh, and that is, very plainly, right there, 
in the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Exodus 20, verse 17. One of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Well, you're like, all right, well, what the heck is covet? I get it. Uh, covet is this. It's to yearn to possess or have something. To desire, to crave, to want. Now, here's the thing. I mean, like, it comes in so many different varieties, guys, right? Like, you can yearn and want that really big car. Or you can really yearn and want the, 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 the easing of your pain and seek it through alcohol or drugs or, or whatever. There's a want that's there. And this is one of the commandments. Do not covet. Do not yearn for things to possess it. Because that will be untamed inside of you. And it will produce worse things. So if we can uh, switch over to the video, gain a little understanding of what covet is. In the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9 are the ones that prohibit acts of evil, murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. And then there is one commandment that prohibits the thing that leads to murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Which one is it? It's the last of the ten. Do not covet anything that belongs to others. Not their spouse, their house, their servants, their animals, or any of their property. In order to understand this commandment and its unique significance, the first thing to understand is that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that legislates fault. All the other commandments legislate behavior. In fact, of the 613 laws of the five books of Moses, Virtually none prohibit thought. Why then does the Ten Commandments include a law that prohibits a thought? Because it is coveting that so often leads to evil. Or to put it another way, coveting is what leads to violating the preceding four commandments, the ones against murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Think about it. Why do people do those things? In most instances, it's because they covet something that belongs to another person. Obviously, that is the reason people steal. Thieves covet their victim's property. But it is also the reason for many murders, and coveting is obviously the reason for adultery, wanting the spouse of another person. As for perjury, or bearing false witness in the language of the Ten Commandments, that is done in order to cover up all these other crimes that are caused by coveting. But in order to understand why coveting is the one fault that is prohibited in the Ten Commandments, and one of the only faults prohibited in the entire Hebrew Bible, we need to understand what coveting means. There we go. <laughs> Wanted to break it off at a good point because it, it goes on for a couple more minutes. Um, so yeah, this is what we have here. This is, this is really an interesting kind of way of looking at this ancient, ancient command of understanding of of don't covet. All right. One interesting portion here is it's, it's the only commandment that is mentioned twice in the Ten Commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And then, do not covet his property. 
So it's mentioned twice. It's the same thing. There's, and in, 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 in biblical Hebrew, when there's repetition of words, it's like, yo, you got to stop and, and listen. Right? God could have said, do not covet your neighbor's wife and property. He doesn't say that. He says, do not covet the neighbor's wife and do not covet his property. Signifying the significance and the importance of the understanding of desire and possession inside of you to yearn more. How interesting. Nine commandments are telling you things that you should do or you shouldn't do. Your behavior, the things, actions. But one commandment out of all of the Bible he's making the argument for, one commandment, at least in the older covenant, that says this is one thing that registers your thought process. Don't do this, don't do that. All, how wonderful could it be? You could break down everything essentially right there to that one commandment, right? Do not covet. Do not have this yearning inside you for other things. Because if you don't covet, all the other commandments are going to line up, as he said. Adam and Eve, they're coveting God's knowledge. Coveting his power. They yearn for it. Because they feel that they lack. Cain over Abel. He covets his sacrifice. And covets the perspective of God saying that Abel is good. And he wants that, so he must destroy it to have it. Look, it's all coming back to want. It's all coming back to economics. What do you want? And how do you get what you want? The real danger with this, as the man was saying, Dennis Prager, if you covet, it's going to lead to commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9. And I would, uh, I would um, argue with him uh, that it actually covers more than 6 to 9. Because what happens here is this. When you begin to covet, it produces unthankfulness and then your eyes will gaze upon other gods. You shall have no other god before me. Well, if you begin to want so much what this person has and you don't have it yet, you start to say, why is my God not giving that to me? And now my eyes are going to go and gaze upon a different God, a different idol, a different thing. If I don't have peace in my life, how come God has not given me the peace in my life? And now I'm going to go towards maybe drinking or promiscuity or drug usage. If, if I don't have all my quote-unquote needs or really my wants being met, well, then I've just got to work harder and I'm going to gaze my eyes upon the God of mammon, the worship of money. And instead of Sunday come to church, I'm going to Sunday go to work. You're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to sit your eyes upon that golden calf. Who or what is giving you what you want? And so when you look at other people and you look what they have, you're like, ah, I don't have it. Your eyes can set its sights on other gods. Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus talks of this. Jesus says, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Covetousness produces a defiling inside of you, which will now create behavior inside of you that is not godly.
right? All right. Well, let's climb out of that pit, huh? Let's climb out of that pit, amen? All right, covenant. We just discussed how, how, how bad it is. And that it creates a, a greater sins. Fine. But I would argue that really the, 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 the worst thing here is, is creating a spirit of unthankfulness inside of you. Which is tremendously dangerous. When you have something that is really cool, you're like, oh, I feel so good about what I have. Like my car or my, my pants or my house, you know? And then you go to someone else's house and you're like, oh, okay. I don't feel so great about myself now. You were once thankful and now you're unthankful. You go from Thanksgiving Day being thankful to, oh, I got to buy a whole bunch of fancy things for my family and my, and my friends. and oh, I'm unthankful now. Look what they can get their kids. Look what they can get. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's very dangerous because it demeans the power of Jesus. If you are unthankful, you're demeaning the power of the death and the resurrection. He has given you life. He has given you salvation. He's given you worth. He's given you value. He sits you in heavenly places. And when you become unthankful, you demean the power of the cross. It's not good enough for you because you're not thankful for what it has given you. It causes your eyes to then go astray. Psalm 100, verse 4. We all know this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Amen? So good. So good. The beauty of thankfulness. Read it again. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. I've always viewed this like when we go into the house of the Lord, we are to be thankful. That's true. To go into the house of the Lord, you should have a thankful spirit about you. Yes. But there's another level to the understanding here. And it's this. Thankfulness is not just a mandate. It is the means. The gates of his presence will be closed to you. The key to unlock that gate is thankfulness. If you do not step into the presence of the Lord, if you in your life and your spiritual life are saying, I don't feel his presence, I encourage you to do this. Start giving thanks to your maker. It will unlock those gates. It's not just a mandate to go into his house with thanksgiving. It is when you get to his house, you gotta go out and you need to praise and give thanksgiving for his goodness of who he is and what he's done for you. And then you'll be able to step into his presence. And unthankfulness will keep you from entering into his presence. I'm not like, I know it's awkward for some of us, and I don't blame you. It's, it's not your fault. It's a, it's a cultural problem of, of, of going to church in the Greco-Roman mindset, which I taught on, I think, last week. This is why I, I say to you guys, like, right now, let's declare thanks. 
Like, let's begin service by just saying thanks. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, guys, I'm not being judgmental. I don't, I don't want to do that. I love you guys. The thing that you love, sometimes you need to look at. And I'm not giving everyone a grade, and I'm not like, ooh, this person. But I'm just being honest with you. The By and large, when I say that, I look around the room, and there are no lips moving. Now you may say, well, I'm giving thanks inside of my mind and my heart. That's cool. Uh, but you're the one that has to evaluate. When I say something like that, like everyone right now, let's just give a thank to the Lord. Let's verbalize that. The reason why I'm saying that is because when we verbalize thanksgiving, his presence comes. And this is sometimes hard for some of us. It's hard. And I'm telling you it's hard because Satan is at work. He does not want you to give thanks to the Lord for multiple reasons. And one of the main reasons is because thankfulness will usher you into his presence. And when you're in the presence of God, the enemy cannot touch you. Wow, that's good. So when we go in this church and I say, come on, guys, just thank him for something simple. Thank you for his blood. You're entering into the presence of God. And I encourage you with this, the next time you're up against the ropes and that sin comes lurking down the road and the serpent comes, and comes through the grass and it goes into your head before you do anything, trust me, before you decide to go and set your eyes on the gaze of another god, another idol, just for one split second, just say, thank you for the blood. And watch what it's going to do in the spirit when it unleashes the presence of God into the midst of your trial and tribulation. Guys, this is why Jeremiah has the audacity of thanksgiving. When Jerusalem is being destroyed, he says, but I know your mercies are new every morning. Because he knows he needs the presence. He needs the presence. He needs the presence when his capital is being destroyed. He needs the presence when people are being brought into slavery and they're being brought into exile. He needs the presence then more than anything other time. So he musters inside of him that little prophet is just going to say, I thank you. The presence comes. I know you guys struggle with sins. I struggle with things. I struggle with sins that like, just need to go. Any real person would say that. Next time the serpent comes, just stand your ground and say, I thank him. I thank him. And you will be ushered into the presence of God inside of this holy tabernacle. When we, when we call the congregation to do it, you're like, oh, oh but I'm going to look funny. Or my, my Thanksgiving is going to be so simple. That is the enemy getting inside of your head to keep you barred from the presence of God. But I feel enough already. That's fine. But I'm telling you right now, you usher Thanksgiving, oh, you're going to be in the Holy of Holies. It also creates a poverty mindset. If we can maybe have the worship team come on down, please. Gracias, mi familia. Is that right or no? 
Thank you, my family. All right. All right, so it creates also, if that's not enough, it creates a poverty mindset. Okay? It creates a poverty mindset. And what is a poverty mindset? It's a mindset that, uh, that you lack, even though you don't. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's listening to the declaration of Satan. You're not good enough. You're lacking. The same junk he used on Adam and Eve, man. It's the way he always shows up. He always shows up this way. You just need this to make yourself feel better. No, you don't. No, you don't. So Satan said, you just need a little bit more knowledge no, no, of good and evil. No, 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 no. You need the presence of God. Poverty is not a state of, of, of being, of not having money. It really isn't. I've met plenty of poor people that do not live in poverty. I've met plenty of rich people that do live in poverty. Jesus says you will always have the poor among you. He does not say you will always have those in poverty among you. Because there's a difference. Rich, middle class, lower middle class, poor. It, fine, it's a scale. And even if we're all billionaires, we're all billionaires, but then there's going to be some people that have a lower sense of billion, right? So they're poorer than the upper sense of billion. You're always going to have that strata of human beings. Poor and poverty are different things. Poor or being poor, look, I am poorer than Bill Gates. Yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. But I do not live in poverty. My mind has been set to higher places. So what is poverty? Poverty is a mindset of unthankfulness. That's what it is. You're unthankful and creates a mindset of lack. And it creates a mindset of setting your gaze upon other idols. Set your eyes on covetousness. It's quite simple. To defeat the poverty mindset, you need to be thankful. Poverty mindset is, a think, is thinking low of yourself <clears throat> and then having a low value of God. It is the ultimate plan of the enemy. It is a plan that says, I am not good enough, and then therefore God is not good enough, and now he's going to get you to set your eyes on another God. God of more money. God of lust. God of desire. God of substance. Your eyes will be set elsewhere. And I'm telling you right now, <clears throat> you as a man or woman, you have a choice. God goes to Cain and he has this very beautiful Hebrew word when Cain is about to kill Abel. And God says unto Cain, Cain, Timshol, 
Cain, Temshon. Cain, you have a choice. So when, when, in English, it's like, why are you disquieted? What is wrong with you? Don't let it lord over you, all that kind of stuff. The Hebrew is simple. Cain, you have a choice right now. You have a choice. The enemy of your soul and the enemy of your mind and your spirit is saying you don't have a choice. But you are a free will being with the breath of God inside of you. You have a choice. And what is the choice? The choice is to covet or the choice is to thank. The choice is to covet and to want and to yearn and to possess and to have more and it will lead to a lack of life and emptiness. Or a place of David that says, even though I make my presence in the depths of Sheol, your presence is there because I thank you. Thankfulness will bring abundance. It may not always be an abundance of material possessions. It may not. But it sometimes does. But more importantly, it will bring you an abundance of life. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is how Jeremiah can say, oh, your mercies. Your mercies, oh God, never come to an end. They are new every morning. Grace is your faithfulness. No matter what darkness you're going through, no matter what difficulties prevail, seem to be prevailing, no matter what lie the enemy is speaking inside of your head, I'm telling you right now, usher praise. Usher thank. Thank you for life, oh Jesus. I do not need this other thing in my life. And His mercy, and His grace, and His life, and His abundance, and His purpose, and His hope will come ushering into that depth, into that deep pit. Jesus. Thankfulness. David thanks God for the kingdom of God. Second Samuel, he shouts out, You are exalted above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me, therefore I will praise you, Lord, among the gods. David thanks God for the provision that God gives him. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hand are strength and power. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. The psalmist thanks God for salvation. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation, Psalm 118. Daniel, in the, in the midst of the lion's den, in the midst of, of, of living in Persia and Babylon, not knowing what's going to happen, he thanks and praises God. I thank and praise you, God. God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power and have given me the interpretation of the king's dreams. You give me wisdom. You give me power. You give me provision. You give me a kingdom. The leper. 
The leper goes to Jesus and throws himself at Jesus' feet. Jesus' feet and thanks him in Luke. I'm thankful for the healing. The healing of my soul. And even Jesus thanks God. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. John chapter 11. Who wants the presence? If you want the presence of God in your life, let's just stand up. I didn't ask if you're going through a hard time. I asked if you want the presence. And we know what brings the presence. What brings the presence? Thankfulness. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. I would say that's a bit of thankfulness, amen? Then, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, filled with the presence. What is the temple of God now? Us. The temple of God is us. So the presence of God, the manifest presence of God can come inside of us when we usher in praise and thanksgiving. And then the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Guys, this is Old Testament for crying out loud. We have the shed blood of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit that seals us for the day of deliverance. We should have access to that presence, to that indwelling, all the time, all the time, all the time. And I'm telling you, Tim Scholl, choose. Choose this day. Choose in that moment. Will you covet and set your eyes on what other people have? Will you covet and set your eyes on those things that will give you temporary relief? Or will you thank? And the presence will come. Amen?